So I just want to uh, read a wee bit from the Gospel of Luke. Um, Just from chapter 18 and 19, it will appear up there on the television screens. If you've got your own Bible, you can follow. If you want to borrow one, there's piles of them on the tables at the front or or just listen. Um, So the Bible, when it was written, of course, didn't have these handy chapter and verse divisions that we uh, rely on. It was just one flowing text. Um, And so the bit that we're going to read, in in my uh, humble opinion... Um, although it sits, these two stories sit either side of a chapter divide, actually, I think it's all part of the same narrative and the same, the same story. So we're going to read uh, two stories that happened in a place called Jericho, which is down the hill from Jerusalem. Um, and Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that what lay ahead from there was uh, arrest and crucifixion and death and resurrection. But he was going through Jericho before starting the long climb up the hill. It was the same hilly climb that the good Samaritan was on when he got um, uh, when he got mugged, basically, and left for dead. So this is chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. May God help us to understand his word. When I was thinking, when we've been thinking about these two Sundays, 
and uh, the fact that the games would be going right past our front door and uh, the, the city center would be closed off and uh, it was just going to be different. Uh, we began to think about what that would be like. Should we do anything? Should we just carry on business as usual? And then that seemed really stupid not to connect or engage with what was going on outside our own front door. And besides, it's kind of fun and it's exciting. Um, and we began to think, well, what, what might we do to engage with it? And so you've seen the stuff that we had on. We thought we'd get in on the cycling theme. So we got a few, uh, we got a few bikes in um, and a few time trials and smoothies later. Um, my legs are really jelly, actually. But I'm so chuffed that I actually beat someone's time who's half my age. Yes. <laughs> He's never going to hear the end of that. But it made me think about the kind of atmosphere that might be in the city centre, weather dependent, of course, because four years ago when there were road races past the church uh, and the Commonwealth Games, and those of you may remember that those were two of the most monsoon-like days uh, of the entire year. And uh, actually, most of the time on those two Sundays, we played host to dripping stewards and sodden police officers and various other folks who were just looking for a space out of the rain. Um, so you just never know. Uh, and so I got to thinking about this story because this is now three years in Jesus' ministry, three years of Jesus uh, healing people and going and teaching people and, and people being really amazed uh, by this man. And everyone knew somebody who knew, knew someone who knew somebody who'd been healed or helped, fed, or uh, in some way transformed by this Jesus. And so there's a bit of a buzz there's a bit of a buzz about Jesus, and, and Jesus is coming to town. Um, and so there's been a bit of a buzz out here uh, in the streets because there's a thing come to Glasgow, the European Games, uh, European Championships, and, uh, you know, it didn't look like it was going to, but it looks like it's catching on a bit now, and people know what's happening. And so, typically when there's a bit of a thing on, uh, if you haven't been aware that it was going to happen, you quickly get up to speed when it does happen. So even if you didn't catch the fact that the European Championships were in Glasgow or what sports would be here or where it was taking place or anything, if you just happen to come into Glasgow today thinking, do you know, it's a nice dry day, I'm going to go and do a little bit of shopping in Buchanan Street, I'm just going to go and have a little wander in the city centre, and then you discover you can't get anywhere because the roads are all blocked and so on, and you say, what's going on? Because hanging outside the building there this afternoon, there were a few people who were just quite innocently and quite honestly saying, what's going on? I had no idea there was anything on. How do I cross the road? How do I get about? What's going on? And Jesus came to Jericho, and there's maybe not quite a carnival atmosphere, but there's certainly crowds. There's a buzz because the people of Jericho have come out of their houses to see what's the deal, what's going on. And so we have this uh, story, first of all, of a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. Now, other Gospels tell us his name. His name was Bartimaeus, which just means the son of Timaeus, which kind of means he didn't even really have his own name. He just had his dad's name. That's how insignificant a guy he seems to have been. Son of Timaeus. So I suppose it would just be like giving someone a surname, calling him Donaldson or McGregor. 
without even a first name. So this guy is sitting by the roadside begging because that's what he does every day. And I'm in the city center every day because I'm the minister here. And every day, you know, on certain corners, you see the same faces of people, and that's their patch. And that's where they go every day. And woe betide anybody who tries to take their pitch because that's theirs. And that's where they normally go. And there's a little bit of an understanding about who gets to sit where and beg and where the good spots are and so on. And so this blind man, in a world where there was no NHS, in a world where there was no uh, uh, benefits, no allowances, no uh, invalidity benefit, no DLA or PIP or anything like that, where there was no attendance allowance, where there was no uh, entitlement to blind aids because they hadn't been invented yet. And not only that, it wasn't just that there wasn't extra help for guys like this man. There was also an understanding in the, in the people, a kind of superstitious view that if you had been born blind, then God didn't like you. You were under some kind of curse. I mean, any, you know, anything that you were born with, well, someone must have done something wrong. God's hand went out against your parents or against you, and you were born blind. They came and asked Jesus once about a blind man. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents? They didn't ask the question, was sin involved here? They just said, which one was it? Where's the guilt? So not only is this guy on the edge of society because he can't see, not only does he not have uh, any benefits or support or help, not only is he not able to work and therefore earn a living in a society where it was hand-to-mouth existence, but also he's living amongst the people who quietly are thinking, God doesn't like you. And I know lots of people like that. I know lots of people whose circumstances and whose experience of life and the voices that other people have told them and the voices that run around their head and the words that were said about them or over them when they were kids or teenagers just go round and round and round and say, well, you're a waste of space, aren't you? And words like that stick. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names or words will never hurt me. What a big fat lie that is. And so here's a man who's living inside a world where other people are telling him he's a waste of space, an embarrassment, useless. He's dependent on the mercy and the kindness of strangers to get enough to eat from day to day and whose family have the responsibility of providing for him. So we could encounter a pretty demoralized, broken individual, which makes the way this guy was all the more incredible. So this guy didn't know what was going on, and when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And the people told him, and this, you know, words are, words are never insignificant. It said, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Mark the name, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is Jesus who comes from Nazareth, Okay. But that's all they thought about him. They said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. A guy whose family roots are carpenter's son from Hicktown, otherwise Nazareth, a pretty inconsequential town up in the north in Galilee, not a very auspicious place. So why did this man not then call out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me? Because that's not what he called out. Immediately when he said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, he shouted out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Changed the name, gave him another name. 
What does your name mean? My name is Gaelic for Alexander, which means defender of men, apparently. I quite like that. Duncan means brown warrior. Not so keen on that. Brown's not, you know. What does your name mean? What's in a name? Does it matter what you're called? Well, certainly it mattered how you saw Jesus because the crowd just saw that he was this curiosity, this guy from up north who could do tricks. And maybe he would do some tricks in our town. And then there was this guy who couldn't see. And the guy who couldn't see could see that this man was not just a trickster, but that this man was the son of David. Now, what does it mean to call someone son of David? Well, you have to kind of go back 2,000 years, and you have to know that Jewish people were hanging on a promise that had come from way back 2,000 years before that, when God had promised King David, Israel's greatest king, that he would never fail to have a descendant to sit on his throne, and that he would have an eternal descendant who would be heir to an eternal kingdom. And so the Jewish people understood that when the Messiah, when God sent a Savior to rescue them, then he would be somehow a descendant of David. That that was that much they knew. So when you called somebody son of David, that was a loaded phrase. It wasn't just, we can't your father. It was, we know, or I know, I believe who you are. You're not just Jesus of Nazareth. What's in a name? Lots of people in the city of Glasgow today, in the city center somewhere, will have said the name of Jesus. <laughs> Lots of people will have said either Jesus or Christ. Now, how they say it, <laughs> what they mean by it, and how it comes off their, or it rolls off the tongue is entirely different, isn't it? Some people will have said the name of Jesus with faith or with respect or with honor in worship and prayer or whatever. And other people, you know, will have just got angry or frustrated because they couldn't get across the road and they'll have used the name of Jesus for Christ's sake. So you see, we can all say the name, but what do you mean by what you say? What do you mean when you say the name of Jesus? Is it just a throwaway? Or is it because like this man who could not see yet could see who Jesus was without sight? And this guy, for all that he was probably downtrodden, regarded as cursed and rejected by God, had heard enough of the kind of people that Jesus was showing mercy to that he was actually willing not to be put down by the crowd not to allow the words and the views and the opinions of other people to keep him back from getting to this Jesus who he believed absolutely was the Messiah and could help him. That's pretty powerful. Here's a guy who, despite the words that had maybe been said over him or about him, despite the fact that even here and now, sitting by the roadside begging, and there's a crowd who want their town to look good. You know that way that, you know, the queen only ever smells fresh paint, that thing, you know. When someone important is coming, uh, then you make an effort to tidy away. I mean, I'm just so grateful and so impressed that we're hosting the European Games because, selfishly, the time trial race on Wednesday goes right 
past or right along the main road just near to my house. And the road was in a shocking state. But hallelujah, they've completely resurfaced it because of the road race. And I couldn't fathom why all of these roads, why there was this flurry of road reconstruction in the city when I came back my holidays. And then I'm like, duh, they're resurfacing all the roads where the, where the cycling's going. And so everyone wants the city to look its best. And they make the preparations and they spend the money that they haven't got in the budget because they've got the games and they can't be embarrassed by a cyclist coming off their bike in a Glasgow pothole. Just imagine if they had to reroute at the last minute. Ha! Socky Hall Street. No! And so the people of Jericho, the good folks of Jericho, do not want the impression of their town to be sullied by some beggar shouting from the side of the road. And so they shut him up or try to. They told this uh, embarrassing blemish on the landscape of fair Jericho to shut up because they were giving them, he was giving them, as we say in Scotland, a ready. That's a red face if you're not from Scotland. Very easy for this man. Very easy when you're the guy at the mercy of the crowds and you're the guy sitting down and everyone else is above you. Very easy when you've spent your life imagining that everyone else is above you and better than you, in control of you, you're dependent on their mercy. Very easy for someone like that psychologically to be cowed and to be shut up. But he shouted all the more, you're not going to shut me up. Because my faith and my conviction that this man is more than just Jesus of Nazareth and that this man has the power to set me free. And so we have Jesus stopping and asking or rather ordering for the man to be brought to him. And then when he came near Jesus, Jesus asked him a weird question, what do you want me to do for you? because he needed to hear it from this man's mouth, that he didn't just have faith in who Jesus was, but that he knew that Jesus had the power to change his life. Faith is a powerful and incredible gift. And so this man needed to speak out what it was that he wanted. Do you actually tell God what it is that you want? Because faith turns our hopes and our longings into actual words. And sometimes, you know, we carry in our heads and our hearts the things that we would love God to do, but we never actually remember to say, Lord, I would like you to. Please, would you? I need you to. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You know, Jesus told a few powerful stories. In fact, the beginning of chapter 18 begins with a story of a woman who, who wouldn't give up, who wouldn't give up, who just pressed on in and wouldn't give up. And Jesus commended the woman and said, ta-da, this is a wonderful model, an example of prayer. Someone who believed enough not to give up. And here's this guy at the end of the same chapter. Despite all the obstacles inside his head and inside his world, who wouldn't give up. Who knew exactly who Jesus was, who didn't care what the crowd said or thought, and who went for it in faith. Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said, receive your sight, 
your faith has healed you because you believed it was possible and that I could do it. You opened a door and all I have to do is grant the answer to your prayer. And he followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Meanwhile, back in Jericho, there's a short, wealthy man who's at the top of the tree, metaphorically and literally. <laughs> you see, why I think that the chapter division between these two is, is wrong is there's a beautiful parallel between the two. Let me do it that way, because of where you're sitting. There's a guy sitting by the roadside who is at the bottom of society, who is the dirt on the soles of the people's feet. And there's a guy in a tree. He went up there because he was short and he wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was at the top of his tree. Why? Because he was a chief tax collector. He was a filthy collaborator who basically uh, was turning the screws on his own people because he was working on behalf of the Romans, the occupying enemy, to take taxes off his own people and give it to the Romans. And tax collectors often operated on a principle of one to you, one to me, one to you, one to me, one to you, one to me. So he was very wealthy, and he was a chief tax collector. He was in charge of the tax collecting network. And so despite the fact that he was a a short man and possibly quite friendless because the people said he was a sinner, he also wanted to see, but in a very different way. The blind man couldn't see, but he could see who Jesus was. And Zacchaeus in the tree went up there because he couldn't see if he didn't go up in the tree, but he couldn't yet see who Jesus was. And so the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich And Jesus stops at the bottom of Zacchaeus' tree. And this man who had been told by everybody that he was collaborating scum, that he was a sinner, that he was uh, a traitor to his own people, that he was greedy and unjust, and that he had no right to call or consider himself a Jew if he was going to work with those filthy Gentile Romans and take money off his own folks. And so I don't imagine that Zacchaeus, apart from his wealth, had much to encourage his heart on a cold winter's day. And yet this man too, two of the misfits and the outcasts of Jericho's society, whilst the crowd is walking along the road, Jesus sees the man at the roadside and the man in the tree. You know, Jesus doesn't make the kind of discriminations that we make in society. He's just as interested in saving and rescuing, healing and helping the person at the bottom of the heap as he is in the person who's up in the tree, who's at the top of their tree and is lonely and whose wealth isn't buying them any happiness. Because actually your status in life is only ever passing away. And so he stops under the tree, and he calls this man down, and the people are incensed. And just as they rejected this man down here for being an embarrassing blemish on the face of Jericho, they didn't want him to have any truck with their filthy tax-collecting lowlife who was up in the tree. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus picked some pretty undesirable types It's what gives us hope. (laughs) It's what gives us hope. 
Because where other people would write these guys off for very, very different reasons, Jesus knew that both of them were loved by God. Jesus knew that both of them were not beyond help or rescue. And Jesus knew that out of the whole of Jericho society, these two individuals that nobody else really noticed were the ones he had his eye on. One shouted until he was heard. The other went up a tree expecting to remain hidden and unnoticed and could have got away with it except that Jesus stopped at the tree and called up to him. And we don't know and lakes of ink have been wasted trying to speculate what went on in the house of Zacchaeus when Jesus went to be the guest of this notorious sinner. And all we know is the outcome. We know that Bartimaeus got his sight back and was able to see with his eyes, having first seen with his heart. But Zacchaeus, who saw first with his eyes, somehow in that conversation got to see from the heart that the life he was living and the wealth he was pursuing weren't cutting it and weren't doing it for him. And he came to realize in the acceptance and the welcome and the grace that Jesus showed him that there was another way to live. Around the tables in here, there's a little booklet. It's the blue one. It says two ways to live. You can either live on your own and call all your own shots and do it your way, as Frank Sinatra famously sang, or God invites you to do it his way, invites you to discover his grace and what happens when we bring our lives by his grace into sync with God's plan for them. I'm always intrigued, and it's pure speculation, and I'm going to finish in just a minute. You'll be pleased to know. At the impact of Jesus' visit to Jericho, and there's nothing that tells me what was left behind except that the guy who was part of the wallpaper of Jericho because he'd been blind and begging every day was now going about his business, presumably earning a crust. He was now a guy who could see, and every day the ordinary people who knew him and remembered him would be reminded that Jesus had passed through and that that guy was now completely different and there was no going back. And maybe you know or have known somebody whose life has been completely changed and transformed because they had an encounter with Jesus. And there is no going back. Because Jesus does profound life-transforming work, and it's the start of a journey, and not everything's sorted out in the first week. But every day they were reminded by the presence of that seeing man in their midst, and of his testimony and his conviction that who Jesus was. And what do you think happened to the economy of Jericho if the chief tax collector had a change of heart? He wasn't just a tax collector, he was the boss. The boss tax collector. So if the boss tax collector has a change of heart about ill-gotten gains and taking money that you're not entitled to, then that's got to filter down the food chain, right? And so suddenly the people of Jericho perhaps find that taxation is not quite as cruel and draconian as it used to be, and that suddenly there's more money in their pocket and the squeeze isn't quite as cruel or as tight. And 
and now life in Jericho through the individuals or the transformation of two individuals on the edges, outcast and hated, was transformed. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes ordinary, unnoticed, unnoticed and unremarkable people just like me and you, and he does a work of transformation. And because of that, other people's lives are affected and transformed and changed, or they should be. That's the intention. Two unremarkable guys, one low, one high. The low man raised up, the high man brought down, and yet both of them bookends in society, from the poorest to the richest, beaming the transformation of Jesus into the life of that town. Never imagine that you can't make a difference in your workplace, your family, your community, or the places, the networks that you're part of, because you can. It's Jesus' preference, as we see from these two little passages, to work through the unremarkable and to bring incredible transformation and a life that's given to him. Where other people might have told you it was useless, cursed, or a waste of space, is gold dust in the hands of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you love and long for the people that you've made in your image and that you want to bring into relationship with you. No life too low, no life too high, that it can't be brought to a place of transformation, repurposed as part of your kingdom so that you might work through our lives as ordinary as they seem to make a difference in the places where you've set us. Lord, we want to be people who make a difference in Glasgow. We want to be people who can tell our story of transformation and change so that other people might have hope and faith and might have the courage and the tenacity to press in after you and seek what they need from you, to open up their home and invite you to come in and be a guest at their table. And so, Lord, take us and use us. And again, we pray as we go into the ordinary business of an ordinary week, Lord, you work in the ordinary places and through ordinary lives. So we offer ourselves to you if we are people of faith and relationship with you and ask that you take us and use us. And if we're still on that journey, that place, asking and looking and watching and wondering, give us the faith and the courage to shout your name, to open our home, and to believe that what other others might say or have said, you're more than willing to speak a different name and tell a different story through our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.